is London Calling. Here is the last news bulletin for today. The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. Hello, and welcome to the Full Reptile Radio. Uh, I'm Dan Hardy, and today I am joined by my good friend, John Gooden. Watcher. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'll give a bit of a background. So we're at IMG Studios. We just finished doing Inside the Octagon for two shows. Hell yes, we did. <sighs> I'm exhausted. And an extra. Yeah. So two full breakdowns yeah. and Inside the Octagon extra. Extra. So two, three, two, three, four. And then we did the Prague card as well, didn't we? Which is yeah. a new thing. We don't normally get to do no, the European stuff. So we've been given a... A larger remit this year yeah. with the ESPN deal and apparently all these fancy broadcasters want to start <laughs> seeing the analysis down. And here we are sitting in a sitting in a dressing room with two mics. <laughs> um, just go show you can do whatever you like, wherever you like. I love, I love the 21st century for that. Um, yeah, it's, we had good breakdowns today. I mean, we, I, had a bit of a, I had a bit of a meltdown earlier because we're trying to get it into broadcast format, which is 22 minutes. And as most people know that watch Inside the Octagon, Limiting it to 22 minutes is a struggle, especially if they're two, two you know, well-known fighters that have had a lot of UFC fights. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge, and I had a bit of a, bit of a yell, a bit of a yell, and a bit of a stomp around the uh, around the studio, and then we went back in and reshot it. So I think the everyone understands though, and this is what this is why this works so different from what I've typically been used to when I've worked with other people. When I worked with my dad, it was very much the same because it's the family business never turns off it's there every it's there every hour and then I've found my my way over to mixed martial arts and found my way in your company and we work together and I didn't ever get into this to pay a bill and I know that you're not like that either no. you know it's this I would have negotiated a fight purse if I wanted to pay my bills with yeah. that money <laughs> never ever did that <laughs> And, it, and it's bled over. Yeah. And we're probably terrible business people for doing that, if I'm honest. Because the motivation for a lot of, of what we do, I hope no decision makers are listening to this, <laughs> it's, dri- it's just driven out of a different place. Yeah. And therefore, we're not, we're not, you're not stomping around because you're not getting paid enough. No. You're stomping around because your creativity and your your artistic nature about what you're trying to convey my autistic nature (laughs) (laughs) there might be a little bit of that as well but the parameters now it's being squeezed and there's a you know anyone that knows dan hardy that's your character is is very liberal Mm. and now we're trying to squeeze and pinch it but we're you know overall besides all of that the end product will be i don't think it suffered and more people will have this almost forced on them in a good way. Uh, yeah. Because if people go to YouTube, then largely it's because they're going there as a destination. Mm. They know what they're looking for. Yeah. yeah. Now it will be out there and people will see this in passing. And it was the whole thing about the, the international expansion and, and our voices coming on. If you've got channel hoppers in the UK who had previously thought that the UFC was just something that went down in America. Yeah. You put a couple of English voices behind it. All of a sudden, it might change their mind, and they might be hooked. True, and might invest a little more. So, or they might think it's Monty Python and turn it off. <laughs> one of two ways. Yeah. Talking of international expansion, you're leaving for Fortaleza tonight, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a new gig. We do. 
and I'm very excited about it. So I can now say I'm, I'm pretty much chalking up everything that I can do within a broadcast capacity for the UFC. Apart from um, doing commentary for a pay-per-view, after this weekend, I, I've pretty much nearly had a go at everything. Yeah. So I'm hosting the desk. Nice. And you are analyst on it, which you've done before. Yeah. Uh, but now it's a travelling desk with the new ESPN era. era. Yeah. yeah. And it's exciting. I like being challenged in these new ways. And, well, I think that we're going to... It's just leveraging the relationship that you and I have and my understand like my growing understanding of the sport and knowing how to get some really good shit out of you because mm. we talk about fighting a lot and we're in one another's company. Yeah. So I I learn stuff, I remember stuff and I sometimes think, oh my God, and we've had this before. It'd be great if people heard this. Wouldn't that be great yeah. if people saw this? It's, and it's, it's another opportunity for that. Yeah, it's 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 all I mean, some of the conversations that we have, like when we're prepping for these inside the octagons are great. And we, like some of these fighters, there are so many different facets to their skill set and their character that it's difficult to kind of nail it all down in one. Like what, what was this, uh, the John Jones Gustafson show? I mean, that could have been two hours long. There's so much to talk about. Yeah. We could have done a whole show on the backstory and how that puts them in the frame of mind that they're in today to face each other again. Like, I find all that stuff fascinating. And some the thing with combat sports, especially with the pace that the UFC move is it, it's difficult to produce good content that's relevant in the moment when the fights are happening. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we have a struggle trying to get these inside the octagons out sometimes because we're we're kind of caught right in that grey area between is the fight definitely going to happen and do we commit all of this time and resources to the show and do we have time to turn it around before the event actually happens? We kind of have to find that sweet spot, that, that Goldilocks zone where it's <laughs> far less likely that we're going to lose a fight. I mean, you, so we've been doing this, what, six years now together? I think this is in the, we're in our sixth is year. Is this the sure, sixth year? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how many times have we recorded a show, particularly the UFC breakdowns, and then all of a sudden one of the fighters has pulled out and the whole show's scrapped? Yeah. Like two, three, four days worth of work. There's a lot of stuff on the what they call the cutting room floor. Yeah. It used to happen when we did multiple shows. I think it would be interesting to know statistically like where that's gone because mm. it would be representative as well of yeah. what's happening with the injury rates and the pullouts. Well, I mean, it jumped up massively when they brought in the healthcare for the fighters because then a lot of fighters that would have normally fought injured to then claim the insurance for the injury and now pulling out of fights to get healthy for the fight. Right. So it's the best way around. Absolutely. But I think I think there was always going to be a backswing to the guys fighting injured all the time because a lot of people carried injuries. And as soon as there was an opportunity to fix them, a lot of guys went, well, you no, know, I'll wait now and I'll fix these first and then I can fight at my best. Yeah. So I think we've passed through that now and I don't think we're getting nearly as many pullouts as we were. doesn't feel like it. No. The, the one that sticks out to me is, and, I, and I'll tell you why it sticks out and it's relevant because I was in Brazil I'd, I'd literally got right, got off the boat. So I'd sailed to Brazil, 30, 28 days at sea, got off the boat, landed. I got an email. We're doing UFC breakdown as soon as you get back. So you need to research. Remember, remember it was uh, Dustin Poirier against uh, Joe Duffy. And I am literally in a hotel in Rio. I've just, I've just spent 30 days at sea. So I'm still trying to acclimate, acclimatize to the space that I'm in and well, get my get my land legs back about me, yeah. and at the same time, I'm trying to research a whole event on my old iPhone with the slowest internet. And I literally spent four days in that hotel room making my notes, going through the clips. I want this clip. I want that clip. I'm going to break down this part. We came back. We filmed oh. the show. Fights called off. Oh, I can't believe it. 
had four days in Brazil, I could have been hanging out with Christ the Redeemer all that time, <laughs> walking through the favelas, not trying not to get shot and juked up. But it is what it is. It is what it is. But I, no, I think we've got a better rhythm now because we try and get them done as close to the fight as we can. And uh, although it means that I have to kind of cram for the last sort of 48 hours. Well, you're getting way busier. And way my busier. schedule, fortunately, is, is getting busy as well. But one thing, you know, we both agree on is inside the octagon is here to stay and we love doing it it's just yeah they've got to, just got to try and fit it in yeah right and so it's five years in out. a row for inside the octagon we've been rolling quite consistently with this yeah yeah so i don't think we've actually done one of these and talked about our working relationship from the beginning from the first time you picked up the phone and called me and was like hey i just want to touch base we're doing a screen test tomorrow and yeah you know just want to kind of that first of all, I mean, we had a screen test, which was a bit odd, wasn't it? That's always odd, yeah. It was odd because we were sitting in uh, one of the studios. It was at Input Media in Shepherd's Bush. A BT Sport. Oh, BT Sport, it was. Yeah, the and big we were, towers. And we were watching a, a, a fight card that had already happened. Yes. And we'd not watched it. No. So we were like trying to be reactive to it. But I mean, it's impossible. I, I can't get through a Sunday morning without seeing something on Twitter. So I yeah. always stay up and watch the fights. That was it. That was a weird environment, especially because it was just the two of us in the room, and we're yeah. trying to react to the crowd noise and the the drama of the fights and stuff. Well, it was a competition as well, for it me. Was, it was, yeah. For me, there were other guys that were in that position. I, I'm not sure what the deal is. I think that you were pretty much nailed on for the job. So it really was one. I had to impress you. Two, I had to impress the TV people, um, and and three, I had to impress the decision makers. Uh, Back in Vegas, of course, our president Dana White, right, Uncle and Dana. and Craig and Zach and the other people who might you might not hear about so much, but if you watch the uh, UFC twenty five years yeah. on Fight Pass and go back through those, which I've I was part of one. They they put really? you know when we did Russia, yes, they've done a whole behind the scenes production element of how do these shows go together. Okay, so I was watching it and we see some of the guys that we would interact with quite a lot, the senior big wigs and whatnot. And all of a sudden, as they get sort of closer to present day, they start throwing in like the whole Russia experience. And I remember that a guy came out and followed me around for a little bit. And I'm sort of leading. I do a, remember that. Yeah, it's very cool. Yes, I didn't know how they were going to fit it all together. Because I was having to pull some punches on my jokes in the uh, in the truck and at the format meeting, not knowing who was going to be here in the tape. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because we were all mic'd up for that one. Yeah. It's always uncomfortable. There's microphones live everywhere. Yeah, right. I've learned that. It's it's funny in the production world because. You can always tell when there's a mic live because everybody's quiet, <laughs> you know? And you can yeah. always tell the beginners in the production area because they're the ones that are talking at the top of their voice and talking shit about yeah. everyone when the mic's alive. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> it's scary. But that I do remember that day. So I... It was difficult for me because well, as much as... First of all, go back to Cage Warriors because you, you, you arrived on the scene fully qualified, ready to do this. And the guys that you were competing against for that position if you want to call it a competition, you were a shoo-in for that, in my opinion, because of the work that you've done, the groundwork. I mean, you called Conor McGregor's fights before the world knew it was Conor McGregor. Yeah, but the guys that I was going up against, one of them was a, a, a breakfast radio DJ who had millions of people that would listen to him every morning. Mm. So, And the UFC at that time, I think they were trying to borrow a lot of fans from other areas. And I wasn't able to pull a new audience. Mm. You know, if you were... I learned this very quickly, Dan. You had... You had MMA fans, and then you had UFC fans. And the UFC fans and the MMA fans, they, they didn't always cross over. So no. when I first made an appearance, the UFC fans, who vastly outnumbered the MMA <laughs> fans, were not happy. 
and it took a little convincing <laughs> and it took you're me, not mike goldberg yeah and who the hell do you think you are uh, get off of my screen right now yeah you bow tie wanker <laughs> and that's just that's just one of the mild ones we do need to cover say. the bow tie thing though while we're on this right. conversation well, well so that i come mean it, from? it sort of comes back into where i started from and excuse me i've got a little can of fizzy pop going on i have a boxing background like in a practical sense like that was that's my combat sports side martial arts as a kid everyone's done like, that. like amazon delivery boxing amazon delivery i couldn't fight my way out of it <laughs> um, so i did the novice abas and when i would fight and when i would go and watch fights it's a black tie do and it was always dressed up that way if you pardon the pun and so when i got really into mixed martial arts and was seeing the struggle of my coaches and some of my teammates I considered them as as good athletes as anyone else around and yet they get no respect for it no one knows who they are they can't support their families very easily they're on the breadline and more than just the financial side it's just having no like people not understanding them and having no respect for what they do mm. and that's that's killer that really is, especially when you know. And I was a little bit older when I got into MMA, like late 20s, so I'd missed the boat. But I was going to give it a go and see where I could get competitively. And to cut a long story short, because I'm sure a few people are probably aware of it now, but I ended up commentating. Uh, an opportunity was presented through my coach on his own show. And it was really just driven out of a passion to just just represent this, these guys and girls way better than what was already out there no disrespect to the other people mm. they had their version and it was a bit sensationalist and i had my version and it was no let's very much lean on that's being done let's lean on all the other aspects the hard work the journey the martial arts um and all the wonderful bits about this sport which was the the honor and how when a fight's done we see more embracing on a fight's done than we do in like most other sports, right? Yeah. And it's genuine yeah. and all the rest of it. So I've always thought that'd be a nice little highlight reel package that the UFC could put together. If they find those fights that ended, the last 10 seconds was just a gunfight. Two guys taking chunks out of each other. And as soon as the horn goes, immediately they smile and embrace. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so you can see that juxtaposition. So everyone yeah. that talks shit about, oh, yes, blood sport, thugs and all this kind of stuff. If you watch people immediately switch when the bell goes i mean obviously it doesn't always happen jermaine Durant, sure. let me give her a shout out i love a good punch after the bell if the referee's <laughs> not in there <laughs> but you know at the same time like there are so many so many circumstances where you've got two guys and they just ah wild wild fight and then the uh, bell goes and they just smile and embrace straight away that yeah. that for me is what defines what you're getting at there yeah that's the the misconception that's often uh, yeah. often placed on the sport yeah so i didn't feel like i had to go all the way the other way with the way that I would do things and and not play to the sensationalist nature and you're very very much influenced about whatever the UFC is doing at the time so Mike Goldberg was the he's the forefather of someone in my position he has designed the way that that's done and we're, we're still left with how that's been with the producers of course because he's been guided but now I do have a different way of doing things and and it is sort of pushing against the status quo and uh, yeah, because you want to be yourself, right? Mm. And I come from a different place than what Mike Goldberg did. North America and the UK are very different. And my what I've seen in this sport is very different to what Mike has. Mike's seen the success end 
of mixed martial arts. I've seen the grassroots end. I've seen the blood, the sweat, the tears and not making it. Yeah. You know, fighting for ticket money and and still giving everything as much as yeah. whatever I've seen inside the octagon sometimes. So when you've seen that, you do come from it from a different level and you can speak about that more. Mm. Um, Mike's got higher, higher level experience. He can speak about that more and he can perform at the highest level, no doubt. Um, I'm untested there, just, just to be balanced. <laughs> so yeah, and, and with that comes an image. And so I would I'd put on the bow tie. This I like to, like, I've always had a, an interesting dress sense. I used to be quite... Larry in what I would do, not crazy. Just just for the US listeners and everybody else outside of uh, Radlett, <laughs> explain what Larry means. Larry, I, yeah. I often have to do this when Owen's on the podcast. He always comes out with stuff that most These people colloquialisms. Yeah, exactly, yeah, I yeah. do fall into that and I get some shit for it as well. But hey, we're, <laughs> we're allowed to play to our national strengths. A bit Larry, a bit, a bit confident. A bit, yeah, uh, so bright. Fancies yourself a bit. A bit. Bright colours, uh, okay. little, not peacocking as such. I think it was out before that book was written um <laughs> but yeah i would statement pieces mm. let's let's just go with that so when the bow tie was there it's just a bit different mm. and it but the association with a bow tie is like this is high level type stuff this is this is really good and it's um i forgot like more formal yes and more gentlemanly that sort of thing i like, always like those old there's a there's an old painting and i remember seeing it when i was a, a, a um an art museum when I was at university and it always stuck in my mind and I wish I wish I could remember who had painted it and it was a scene out of an old ballroom of two boxers and and within the four sides of the ring it was just carnage I mean they were like the, the it was an oil painting and they captured it perfectly there was like the glistening sweat and the blood and the, the, the mist as the punches were landing as the sweat was coming off the skin but then outside of the ring all the way around are people with you know black ties you know table uh, waiter and waitress service at the tables and the ring girls are are dressed in like a nice evening gown instead of looking like they're on a beach and that kind of stuff like that very uh i mean you know sort of 200 250 people in a ballroom yeah just kind of it's very elegant yeah just 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 a patter of clapping when someone gets knocked out instead of uh yeah exactly i I quite like that i mean bodog used to do a bit of that kind of stuff didn't they right uh, the ballroom stuff yeah. yeah Rosie Sexton was on she Bodog. She did, didn't she? Like in the Caribbean or something mm, like it. that. Yeah, on a beach or something. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a few fights on a beach, but it wasn't, wasn't <laughs> Bodog. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it. It's funny because I've only, in my adult life, I've only worn a bow tie once. Uh, the time before that when I wore a bow tie, believe it or not, was my parents' wedding. <laughs> right. I was three years old and I wore a bow tie at their wedding. Bless you. And I was completely obsessed with my jelly tots and my uh, my matchbox cars. So I... Not at all interested in the bow tie at the time, but then I went to um, a, a sports award presentation. And I had to, I had to proper James Bond it up. Yeah, I tell you what, there's something powerful about putting on a bow tie, even if I didn't tie it properly and it was only a clip on. I still felt like like I was a I was a secret agent when I looked in the mirror. It's yeah, a good look. I do, well, it's different as well, and I've all, and I have had that about me at the same time. I don't necessarily always want to look like everyone else, and but it's not necessarily been a contrived strategic move. Although the strategy employed 
was to give a better impression, but it wasn't a necessarily a personal thing. I'm not going to mm. say it wasn't all there. It is me. Yeah, that's like how not like I a am. silly haircut or something like that. No, not like a not like a red moat. I mean, that's something like that. Yeah, you don't want to do that kind of <laughs> stuff. <thing. laughs> so, uh, I mean, it probably has gone some way to being more recognised, and now I feel like it sticks around. And I'm and actually, that's not me. Mm. I would change it up quite frequently if I felt like it or didn't but now yeah. I do feel like if, if I'm commentating on fight night the bow tie is part of my kit mm. not necessarily shtick more my kit yeah. like I have a type in that my wife got me on our wedding day and, and a few things like that you, you'll know Dan I set out a few things going oh, yeah. back to our screen test mm. so actually let, well, let's, let's do that because I, I still see the camera guys that filmed our screen test i work with them because i do a lot of producing work and i'm out with those guys so i have like a whole catalog of things that i take with me snacks like a uh, eucalyptus sniff stick you've got to have you got to have your coke sniff your little my little yeah (laughs) right before the event starts that's why he's all wide-eyed and excitable (laughs) can't hold still (laughs) like uh, yeah it's eucalyptus i promise you and like my lip balm and whatever then obviously just a stack of notes and this camera guy uh, remembers that he'd set these cameras up. And because I'd got this, this what looked like shelf in a bathroom <laughs> set up or in a kitchen like a spice rack, uh, it was just taking up all the views of the cameras. And he's like, this motherfucker, what's he doing? <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he reminds me about that. But I approached it in no other, I didn't know any other way. And this is all. This is me through and through with this. I don't really, apart from a, a very small part of my life I spent at the BBC when I was, let's say, twenty-four. I don't know anything else apart from this, mm. you know. So I only know one application. I only know one way to research. I only know one way to go about it, and that's been the same kit. And there's been a consistency in what I've done. Small changes. The UFC is different to grassroots. You can get away with certain things at grassroots, like I would train with the fighters. Yeah. They were amateur or or early pros. So I would go to a gym. I would join in. I'd get the permission, of course. I would get on the mats and I'd train with the fighters. And then when the session's done and everyone's sitting around the mat, you know what it's like, Dan. When those chemicals are firing and you've been, you, you've been through some positions with people and you understand it, you're still talking about what you've learned. And then those, those stories extend beyond that. And that's the brotherhood that you get yeah. within a gym, on the mat and in the community. Mm. And I'd, I'd love to be able to do that, but I went out to see Jan Bojovic last week. There's no point in me uh, jumping on the mat with uh, that 205-pound monster no, who's getting ready monster. to you know, uh, go for a title if he wins this fight. But I'd, I would love to do that. Mm. I genuinely would. I mean, I'd just be a punching bag for most people. Shame WEC's not around. We could have sent you out for those guys. At least they're all small. Well, there you go. There you I'd go. feel much more comfortable <laughs> in my week back if I could do that. Maybe we should too, we should choose producers by uh, by weight by class. size. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm all for it. Um, so so yes, I've I've kept those together and and then we did we did the we did the screen test and I think because I knew. Two things went in my favour. I knew the UFC format. I knew the way that the show worked. So I knew about sponsors and I knew about corner cams and mm. fucking corn nuts and <laughs> and uh, and Harley Davidson and everything else. And yeah. I was giving it a go because once, th- as you were kind enough to say, you know, you were a shoe in for this, but no disrespect to Cage Warriors because it really did prepare me as best as any broadcast really could. But there is no real stepping stone. And it, 
and I'd say no it's for the fighters it's it serves them a lot better but you know Dan you've actually worked on Cage Warriors as well as as uh, UFC but now the Cage Warriors productions even more complicated than what it used Mm -hmm. to be when I was there the jump is huge and the amount of program elements that go into a UFC broadcast is insane. I spend so long preparing that. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy the challenge and, it, and, it's a, and it's a necessity. And I like the fact that I'm able to overcome this complicated broadcast. But ooh, going from Cage Warriors and few, few, much fewer eyeballs and, an, and a very loose program where we could just talk like this really yeah. until the next fight happened to them being in a structure mm. and getting this shit across. Yeah, and, and a structure that's down to seconds as well. I, I have this conversation so much with people that, you know, I mean, you can imagine what, what my Twitter's like as the fights are going on. There's lo- you know, everyone wants to tell me what their opinion is and find out what mine is. And so I always have good conversations, but oftentimes the, the commentary team comes up and the amount of times there's a misconception about what the difference is between colour and play-by-play. Yes. You know, like the, like the, the, the colour commentator's the analyst. That's the, the, the Joe Rogan, the former fighter, the Jimmy Smith kind of guy. I think Jimmy Smith's great at his job, by the way. And I'm, yes. uh, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that we're not going to be hearing him on a UFC broadcast. I, I, think he is, I think he is very good and he works hard as well. But that was digress that is the role of the color commentator the analyst and then you've got the play-by-play guy who is yourself john anik uh, uh brendan fitzgerald uh, todd grisham before he went back to glory full-time obviously goldie as well that that's the guy that effectively holds the show together like you are the structure you're the one that gives it the structure otherwise it's just me talking about punching people in the face <laughs> that's literally it is you get no sponsor reads there's no there's no stru- i don't know who's walking out next because i'm just so excited about the, the fights are happening and so it's a very different role and the job that i do is predominantly research-based and the job that you do is partly research based, but the bit that's not research bit based is the bit I just absolutely would make a complete mess of. And most people that are color commentators couldn't do your job, and I don't think people realize that. Well, I mean, I think with training, but you'd it would be difficult for you guys, I think, who know so much about fighting, to not let that out there. Yeah, know? but but then at the same time, you kind of you kind of blur the area that you kind of blur that that line as well because most play-by-play guys are play-by-play guys because that's what they do and then they came into the UFC because that was where the play-by-play job was like Goldie was uh, ice hockey for example right. and they did basketball and that kind of thing before whereas you come from a different side and as you were saying there was no preparation to do that job in the UFC there's no you can't go to to you know play-by-play commentary university School. or college yeah. or there's no way of learning that structure it's basically you learn on the job yeah so that's the bit that I don't think my brain has. Like I could have probably sat down at the side of the cage at Cage Warriors and commentated the fights, doing the job that I do now, and it wouldn't have been a massive stretch to jump up to the UFC. The, the level's higher, the the amount of information's yeah, higher. because you're led exactly, a lot of the time. Exactly, for sure. As long as you've got a good guy next to you, yeah. But you went from being on a show that had no real structure as such to being on a show that is meticulously structured. Down to eight seconds. It's crazy. Yeah, I get a lot of those counts. A lot of 13 second, eight second leads. And you've got to hit that because this is where people, some people understand that like it's called a world feed. So there's multiple broadcasters that take it. So English speaking countries will largely just see like us and what have you. But Mm. other broadcasters around the world, they interject with their own coverage. And so when we get these hard counts, they need to be hit. 
Otherwise, we're going to be uh, stepping on someone else's toes or coming back from commercial breaks at different times. We don't always get it right. I sometimes take a few risks, get it wrong every now and then. But I mean, that's me trying to refine my art yeah. and and pack out as much as I can and sometimes be a bit cocky, which yeah. might bite me on the bottom sometimes. <laughs> so going back to the first event that we actually were sat on the inside. <laughs> right. And I remember this because I mean, I was wearing a I was wearing a little little Fred Petter, Fred Perry sweater sitting Octagon side. I felt like I didn't belong there. I wasn't quite sure why I'd been put in that seat. But it was Ronda Rousey against... Uh, oh, that one. Yeah, yes, sorry. Ronda yes. Rousey, Sarah McMahon. And was it Daniel Cormier against Pat Cummins as well? It was. Yeah. I mean, we were literally, we just... Here you go. Here's your microphones. Here's a rough format because you were working to Goldie's format at the yeah, time, I believe. it did me in. It, it knocked my confidence more than it helped. Really? Well, this was the... So going back to the, uh, the program elements, there's... There are hundreds of bits of paper that I take into a broadcast. And I'm not different from, or not massively different from Anik and Brendan and Goldie. But we all have our own way in which those those bits of paper are written, are put into an order, and then how they how they appear on your desk. And I just didn't, I did not know. Because <laughs> I'd never seen Goldie's cards before. Yeah. I did not know how he worked. And it's not the way that I worked. So I... I just couldn't follow it. So then I'm trying to keep pace with the show and I couldn't and I lost it and I was getting in a right old tiz was and a panic and a right old tiz was. A right old tiz was. Welcome to the most British podcast you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a nightmare, but really what's important is the calling of the fights. Mm. I mean, the other stuff is nice to have and I'm sure if you're really bad at it, you'd probably get the heave ho. Uh, but, Essentially, you got to call the fights. You got to call the fights right. So, so sometimes, as much as I get, and you'll see it, you know that I'm pretty hard on myself. If I don't hit the fucking, if I don't hit the number, I'm like, oh damn it, uh, or we, worse. We need a camera on us when we're commentating because the, the amount of times you finish a read on someone, Kelvin Gastelum, winner of Tough Seventeen, blah 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 blah, and you fucking nail it and it's perfect, and then you put your card down, you turn to me with no noise at all, and you go, fuck. <laughs> 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 like, oh, I guess that was bad. I don't, I don't. I'm not sure where he where he made a mess of that. It yeah. sounded right to me. I'm just a perfectionist. I really don't like any of it going wrong. You know, because it's not just us as well. Behind us are a number of producers in different capacities. There are directors. Behind that, you've got senior staff. Then you've got a whole host of people all around the world putting this UFC machine to work. Then you've got the fighters themselves, the coaches, their sparring partners. And I know it sounds like I'm here. You're like, oh, get over yourself, John. Yeah, I'm not taking the responsibility of everyone, but all of that channels through in a way to how they're represented. Mm. The way that that fighter walks out and how we perceive that fighter and what they do behind the scenes, that's our job to help give that some context. Mm. And if you're all over the bloody place and you're saying the wrong stuff and, and you aren't able to get your sentence out then that message isn't delivered as nicely as it could be. Yeah. So that, that responsibility is is shouldered and it needs to be right. Mm. So that's kind and, of where I come And that soundtrack it. is the soundtrack of their fight career as well. Yes. That's something else. I didn't even really, really allow that to sink in until I was writing my book. And I watched some of my old fight, fights back with my ghostwriter and we were sat, sitting talking and going through a few bits. Scary guy? <laughs> Saw right Terrifying. through him as Saw soon as he right. got to the door. <laughs> Casper his name is. <laughs> um, a great writer, Paul Gibson, by the way, yeah, a boxing very journalist. Good. Yeah, yeah, really good. Um, 
So we sat and we watched through a bunch of my fights and we talked and talked. And I, I didn't realize until we did that, that how important, how important Rogan and Goldie's voices were to my fights. Because they were the soundtrack to the fights. Yeah. Like on the Ludwig knockout, Dan Hardy's got a really good left. Oh, and he's knocked him out with a left hook. You know, like those moments make the fight for me. And I often think when we're, when we're commentating on the fights, the person I'm commentating for is the fighter that's going to listen back to this the next day when they're watching it, especially if it was a good performance. The worst thing is to have a great performance and the commentary is terrible because then you just have to watch it on mute every time. And I was fortunate I've always had good commentators. So I always try and raise up to that standard myself to give them the commentary that they would want for their fight career. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I've only really just connected these two dots. So I just did a, I did a podcast with my coach, Dave Lee, um, team Crossface, and they've got uh, the Crossface couch where they're now talking to everyone in the team and talking about martial arts and what have you. Uh, it's, it's an interesting listen. I go into deep, into detail about the, the local scene and, like the parts of my career that I probably haven't spoken about before because Dave obviously gave me the gig. Mm. And he said to me, his offer was, let's give the fighters some commentary because we can put a couple of cameras on it. How good would it be for a fighter to watch their performance back with a little bit of colour? And that was the whole idea. The idea was, was for them to be able to watch their fight back with, a, with something a je ne sais quoi, with yeah. something a little extra. And I was the one that he had asked to provide that. Mm. That was my step one out of all of them. Mm. And it's, and you saying that, I guess that's still the same. It's still yeah. the step. It, well, you, you, the way that you go about your research, I mean, you're, you're obsessive in the way that you research the backstories of the fighters because you want to make sure that those narratives come out as they're walking out so people can digest them before the fight starts. And, and make I mean, a decision on whether they love them more or sure. don't like them or yeah, yeah. who they're rooting for, yes. know, whether that person's in the right frame of mind to be in the fight, whether they've got the right people around them. You know, there are so many different things that come into that sort of 15 or 20 seconds as they're walking out to the octagon. But, and I often listen back to other people commentating and they, and they, they don't offer nearly as much, nearly as much uh, of the background information. What's your process during fight week then? I mean, I, I see you always talking to the fighters. You do the end stuff as well. So you do the interviews for the fighters. And so you get quite a lot of interaction with them. Yeah. What, what's, your, what's your process for that? Well, the process, it all really start, it obviously starts at home. Sometimes in the past when I've had more time, I've actually visited camps. Like I said, even when I've been with the UFC, I've gone down. I remember I, I did it with Joe Duffy. I've done it with Arnold Allen before. So I'd go to the fighters and sit, watch them train a little bit, mm. uh, interview them, you know, see what's going on. And because I'm, it's a warm call for me now. I've been on a scene a little while. So if the if the gyms are within reach, then it's nice to go down there and see everyone because uh, we've all grown up on the circuit together. Mm. I like to think of it that way. So I, I start gathering my information in many different ways. Like I might reach out to a fighter directly. Um, the UFC didn't always want us to do that, so I stopped doing that sometimes. But I might drop like Danny Roberts a little note after he's put up an Instagram video and it might just spark something. I go, well, you just do, what, what's the thought process here? And he'll just come back mm. to me and then I'll think, okay. And I'll just put that in somewhere in, in my note making. Mm. Evernote. Evernote. Evernote is my, the, the green elephant. The green elephant. <laughs> I, I obsess about this. Uh, people have heard this before, but it's a very good note making tool and it syncs up on everything all the time. Yeah, you keep, you always laugh at me because I like a pen. You like a pen. <laughs> hey, it's a good way. It actually helps you take things in, whereas I think my way doesn't. Because I rely on the technology, it's like I've offloaded it. Yeah. And I have to re I have to re input, 
but anyway, I, I write this all down and it allows me to go back over years and, and see what the research looks like. And I'll look at interviews that other people have done. And it, but it's my own conversations, really. And no disrespect to any other MMA journalists out there because they do get the stories. But often when there's a microphone in front of someone, you're not getting the on it. They're letting you know what they want the world to hear. Yeah. Not everything. And I like to think that I've earned the trust of people when I speak to them. I'm not here to trip you up. I'm not here to tell anyone anything that you don't want me to. You're but not help, TMZ. <laughs> no, but help me understand you yeah. so that I can give that proper context and I can I can get that out. And we can we can skirt around the real issue, the ACL stuff that's hanging around right now, whatever it might be. Mm. Sometimes I actually don't want to know the serious stuff just in case because I'd feel awful if I let the cat out of the bag. Mm. So coming into fight week, I've pretty much covered off, I call, call it my social media sweep, so I'll go through all of their social media, every fighter, and pick up all of the stories. I'll try and listen to any podcasts that they've been featured on, any column inches as well. But when I get to the fight week, yeah, it's, that's when you get your really good stuff. And I'd taken on a role within the UFC as producer. So during fight week, the bits where you see the guys doing the shadow boxing before they walk out, and then they're talking just off camera, and they go, tonight I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. I'm the guy asking those questions. Mm. Um, a lot I'm, of the I'm, the, I'm the person singing in the background though. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, that's, that's, me. that's me. A lot of people don't know that. Very tuneful. <laughs> and, um, and the water bottle spray. Do you remember that? Yes. When I, I first started doing these, it was literally there was someone standing on a stool behind me with a bottle of water spraying it behind me for the. At least, at least we move forward. We, d- we don't do that there. anymore. We just oil them as they come through, of the, course. through the rooms. Of course. Some like of them come pre oiled. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know how that happens. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm then in the room with the camps and I'm able to, you know, without stealing any more of their time away, I'm in that room anyway. There's no distractions a lot of the time. It's like, right, okay, what's going on? Especially with a lot of new fighters. Mm. And, and then I just get those notes, lay them down. And just keep building. I've had conversations with fighters where we've been on the the, uh, the fighter bus on the way to the arena, and it's completely changed the narrative of how I was going to sell the fight. Really? Yeah, really. Like all the way down to the wire. You never know what you might see. I could walk past a locker room and see something that now ranks higher on my list of points I want to get across mm. because they look super nervous or they look. I probably wouldn't say that actually. It would be more about whether they're of a certain confidence or something like that. Yep. Whether they're kicking the, the, you know, the post in the gym. in the, uh, Or if they're the screaming, room. shouting. We've seen yeah, yeah. so many different things. Mm. It's such a unique and intimate area backstage. Yeah. So you can always take something from it. So always looking for, for bits to bring to the broadcast. And then it's, then it's getting in as much as you can. And, uh, and still then trying to, to find the relevant places to throw that in during the fight as well. Mm. And not spend it all too early in case the fight goes the full distance. Yeah. But I, that's the reason why I like to research to the depth that I do. Because I always, like, metaphorically leave stuff on the table. There's always stuff that, I've, that I haven't said, you know, nine times out of ten. Yeah. So that, you know, so, okay, didn't get that away, but I've got the most important, most relevant bits out for now. Mm. And then that might become a storyline in a future fight, if needs be. That's why it's good for me to have it down digitally because green I can, elephant. Yeah, yeah, my I'm, green. I'm, I'm digging through <laughs> scribbles of paper, and I often write my notes on the back of envelopes, which is terrible. Old bank letter envelopes no, you and don't. stuff. I do, mate. 
Honestly, if I if I showed you my bag in the car, I have a handful of, of old envelopes that have been ripped open, taken out of the recycle bin because I need to make a note on something, and then that that becomes a bit of gold. This that is paperwork. like eight mile. It's not good, is it? Yeah. There will be a technology soon where a scanner will be able to decipher your handwriting, like all of us, not just uh, your yeah. handwriting. I don't. I just don't. Most people's handwriting. Yeah, I, I need an Egyptologist to to decipher mine. It's closer to hieroglyphics than it is uh, than it is regular writing. A part of that's the part of that's intentional though, because obviously if you're doing digital stuff, that's on your hard drive, on your laptop, so no one's getting to it. Whereas I, if I accidentally leave this notepad somewhere laying around, right? Not only is there loads of interest in full reptile collective designs, but there's loads and loads <laughs> of notes in here on yeah. fighters, yeah. You know, potential opponents for people I've been training. I've got all the all the inside the octagon notes in here, so it, there is there is a benefit in it not being readable for anybody else. There is something quite special though about my old and you'll obviously see this my old notebooks Mm. which i've gone back through and i did it not long ago and i I might have put it out on social media but i had notes that i'd made from conor mcgregor sitting down with conor mcgregor and taking notes from him and as a friend of mine steve o'keefe who has now got a fight on cage warriors but he fought conor mcgregor as a blue belt steve's now a black belt and just to see his career progress he's still around and I'm going back through notes and there are many examples of that flicking through and it's very accessible and I and it's in those moments because I'm you just realize how long you've been around and I'm not saying I've been around as long as (laughs) everyone do you know what I mean you've been around a while John but you've like you you've like I've I've really worked hard here for Mm. a lot of years and it's nice to see that work and how it's developed into what I do now yeah and how very differently I do my notes yeah Imagine how many filing cabinets you'd need, though, if you printed off your entire Evernote. There's half of the Amazon rainforest gone Oof, right there. It's not, <laughs> just ethically, you would be it able just to doesn't, do that. It doesn't fit with my <laughs> compassionate views. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So tell me about, uh, let me think. Give me a standout moment before you joined the UFC and then standout moment since you'd been part of the UFC. What stands out in your commentary career or in your martial arts career before you came to the UFC? Um, there's been a few things. There's been a few things. I think one one big thing, and it's a it's a it's a dark moment, and it, it sort of came back after I did this podcast with my coach Dave. I lost a friend in a kickboxing match, and I only bring that up one underlined kickboxing. It wasn't MMA, but it just changed so much for me it changed everything competitively for me because my I'm not sure if she was my wife at the time fiance girlfriend was just said you're not now competing you know that could happen to you so you're not competing Mm. and I was a bit resistant at first but then it would have been very selfish for me in the aftermath of seeing a friend a training partner have like lose his life to then get back in a competitive way and then put that pressure on everyone. They'll be biting their nails for very different reasons. Mm. And it's um, is that part of the reason why you went so you you, you back to safe MMA and all the all yeah that kind of stuff. So yeah, so, yeah. I went on a bit of a crusade by myself, writing up various different bits and pieces, like things we need to do in mixed martial arts to stop this. But I didn't have the credentials. I didn't have the know-how. I just needed something needed to be done. And I started approaching like Mark Goddard, Rosie Sexton. And it looked like those guys were already onto something anyway. And I kind of thought, well, good. They have a, a much better uh, standing in the sport than I do, a much better understanding and reach. But then 
credit to Graham Boylan, when I was working with uh, Cage Warriors, he knew about my my crusade, if you like, and my interest in this area and a desire to see things change. And he put me forward when he was approached by Safe MMA, which was the first medical initiative in UK mixed martial arts, which is spread to Ireland as well, and now forms part of the IMF uh, Amateur Association. And uh, yeah, I became a board member. And just on the logistical side and, and sort of moderating between the promotions and, and helping that understand it, speak to the fighters. I was very proud of that work, you know, very proud. It was a massive culture shock for mixed martial arts in the UK because people were having to pay license fees and the guys weren't earning the money anyway. Yeah. So it's very tough, but we needed to make a change um, because we didn't want anything like that happening in mixed martial arts. So, yeah. so have, yeah. Have you seen those changes? Because it, it was a, w- w- the, the medical attention wasn't there at the right time. No, so, so basically you, you didn't have to have certain medical professionals uh-huh. at an MMA event. You could choose your rule set. Uh, you could have a guy who had a, a bloodborne virus. And how would you know? Mm. Because they weren't testing for it. What about people who had like a certain type of scarring which which would actually you know really harm them in the, in the long term they're going to be disfigured for life or whatever so physical mm. examinations yeah. and things of that nature so yes it made a big difference especially mm. with the biggest promotions like Bama UCMMA and, and Cage Warriors at the time they could only choose from a pool of people that were tested for these things and cleared and it and people were getting discovered for things that they were very thankful to save MMA that they, they'd found out about. Yeah. There's one particular guy, Dan, who he was getting his hands wrapped and because of his brain scan, it developed, sorry, from blood testing and just a physical examination, there was like another level when uh, scans started to be introduced as well. Just It was just so expensive that you had to start with bloods in a physical examination first. And it grew when people accepted it a bit more. Anyway, this guy got pulled from a fight when he was having his hands wrapped. And rather than kicking off and being, like, petulant about it, he's so thankful because he's a family man. I don't know if I should say his name, so I'll I'll hold it back. But this scan was... A guy had it flown to him on a golf course. Wow. To look at this, and he said no. And it could have saved his life. Wow. So this is a dangerous sport, Absolutely. you know, but, and, but he might not have, I don't, again, I don't know this case and, and I was never privy to these, uh, to these things, the, the, this, uh, the personal information, it's um, obviously private. He may have been born with that. It may have been developed through mixed martial arts training. It may have been developed from a skateboarding accident. We don't know, but what we do want to know is whether someone is, is safe and medically okay to compete, yeah, you know, with free with freedom, knowing that they've done everything that they can, and and also for your opponent, if you know, God forbid, you had a bloodborne virus, and you didn't know, and then you pass that on, that's yeah. horrendous. Yeah, or, or even for your opponent, in the sense that they don't want to punch somebody and that person not wake up again. Oh, you know? oh my God! I mean that that stay that stay with you forever. There's yes, a, I mean, I, it, it's it's the thing is like like you say, it is a dangerous sport. I mean, people do hit each other, and there are injuries and in come some quite bad injuries sometimes it's not about stopping people doing it though it's about minimizing the risks yes and that for i mean 
I didn't have any kind of blood work or scans done until I signed with the UFC. The UFC are the the, the scans and the everything they do. Let me tell you, is mm. absolutely one hundred percent the highest level. Yeah, yeah, and people don't even realize that they've, they've invested heavily in the Cleveland Clinic as well. Like when right. I went out for to to a, a UFC fight week, uh, wasn't last year, the year before. And the UFC contacted me and they said, would you mind going to the Cleveland Clinic and spending the day there while you're in town and going through all of these tests that uh, we're putting the fighters through? I mean, they are putting hundreds of fighters through these tests. I was, I had, f- uh, what, four different types of MRI scan. I was in there for over an hour. Right. And I did loads of cognitive tests, reaction tests, balance tests. It, I mean, it was really good. And they're, they're creating this huge catalog of results of not only UFC fighters, MMA fighters generally, boxers, people from other combat sports and contact sports. That's great. It's amazing. Data is key. Mm. And that was one of the things with Safe MMA is we need to collect the data to see if are we bigging this up and saying it's this dangerous sport and all of these things are happening when actually the results are people are just getting a few cuts. Yeah. And actually, that was really what was happening. Yeah. They were minor like soft tissue injuries and lacerations which were easily dealt with mm. thank the lord right. but you needed to, we needed to get to a place where those stringent tests that the ufc were already doing and continue to do were coming down and i've spoken about this before it's so rare in business in an industry where it's dripped down from the top and yeah. it's not grown from the bottom you know a lot of the success of this game hinges on the success of the UFC. The UFC being successful has a direct correlation with Cage Warriors being successful, I think. I might mm. be wrong there and some people at Cage Not Warriors at might disagree. I, I, I totally agree with you. But, I absolutely agree. But you mentioned it and it doesn't get said enough. The UFC reinvest in this sport by helping out federations, by by spending their own money on the drug testing program. Yes, there was a selfish pursuit for that. But those people aren't going to be with the UFC forever. Mm. So now you've got clean athletes in the MMA world outside. Yeah. And hopefully they maintain those principles. And it's a heavy, heavy cost. So, um, so yeah, well done for the UFC for plowing stuff into it. For the right reasons yeah, as well. Yeah. That's drug testing and health. For the right reasons. Not because they're scared of bad press, but because they genuinely are concerned for the fighters and want longevity of the sport. Yeah, but if, if anything's going to trip up a combat sport, especially a new combat sport like the UFC, it, it's going to be giving, giving ammunition to the people that have got negative things to say about so it. So many of them. Like I always remember, I I mean, I'm, I'm sure you remember this as well, I argued with a guy on a forum a long time the ago. The Independent. It was the I Independent. I do remember it vividly, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we went back and forth over and over again. That got thousands of views, that, that, that thread did. Um, and it... it it created quite an important debate, I thought. The one thing that kept coming back, though, they kept posting photos of Big Daddy Stevenson, Joe Stevenson, after he fought BJ Penn. Yeah. And his face was a bloodbath. Yeah. But then you wipe that cut up and it's about a centimetre long. It yeah. wasn't a big cut. What about that cut the other day? Who was it? Um, oh, got it. Uh, in boxing. It was oh, a recent yes, fight. yes, yes. What's it, Jack? Uh, uh-huh. I know someone because uh, he was wiggling his eyebrows oh and it was opening and closing. Lord, Do you remember yeah. the one that Ross Peter, Ross Pearson, Ross Pointing got from uh, Marius Zoromskis? Yes, yeah. Someone even photoshopped Ross Pointing's eyes above the cut, so it looked like he had a second mouth. It was brilliant. <laughs> oh my god! Bad cut that was. Very bad. But then uh, the other one I remember is um, what's his name? Mel, uh, Marvin Eastman, the yeah. Beastman, when he when he met uh, Jesus fueled Vitor. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. That was a bad cut. Because yeah. like, Vito had been away for a while, hadn't he? 
he came back he had he had big curly hair and he'd you know he looked like he kind of lost his way a little bit that was when he come back from uh, his sister being kidnapped that's right and oh he'd been gosh. away for a long yeah. while and then when he came back it was like what Vitor is this going to be for the first sort of 15 or 20 seconds of the fight he didn't really do anything what is it? I think it was longer than that and then he just exploded and poor old Marvin Eastman ate a knee to the forehead that uh, almost almost split him in oh, two. Dear. Almost made him two Marvin Eastmans. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what? Give me a give me a, a standout moment before you join the UFC. Then, what what's one fight that stands out to you that you were like, "Oh my, I'm glad I was cage side for that." Yeah, um, Carl Pendred versus David Bilkaden. Good call. That was a really, really good mm. fight. Really good fight. Back and forth. You know, Cahill uh, was a guy that I got to know very well on the scene. I'd love to. I'd love to have a conversation with him now. The guy's gone on to have success in business and acting, and I, I'm really interested in in that. And you know, if he is if he is listening to this, I'll, I'll be in touch. I know we're meaning to do that. So that that was a good fight. Um, obviously, McGregor's fights. Um, Probably the the uh, Ivan Bushinger fight was that the one where he jumped the cage and jumped into all his friends and well via my face as well <laughs> you know I took a knee took a Conor McGregor knee Is that right? as he came and you're to still standing John no problem Look dude <laughs> no problem uh, swung the my uh, ears off my headset. But I managed to grab the microphone to keep on commentating. Oh, look at you. The truth, oh, it was, it was cut out for this, wasn't I? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. D- diving across a beer-soaked, sweaty floor to catch the headset as it And pulls. carry on like the pro oh, that I wanted to be. He's destined for the UFC. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that nice. was a moment. There was... Well, there was some some other yeah. I mean, there's. I'm not very good at this recall thing. Right. Re, re, I'm just not. But they they were two big moments. I think. Um, I'm kind of sad that your commentary role for Cage Warriors and my fighting for Cage Warriors didn't overlap. That would have been nice. It would have been nice. It would have been great for this story as well. well it would be. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I always ended up. So I had. Uh, I have a couple of the old Cage Warriors DVDs. When I fought Matt Thorpe for the Cage Thorpe Warriors title, my goodness, twelve gauge, six foot four. Just all elbows and knees. It was like fighting a bag of spanners. Everything you kicked was a very sharp good edge. Yeah, very good, really good. Good coach now as well. Yeah, so I've um, heard. But the commentary was done after the event, and the people commentating right. were his corner team. <laughs> so, so, so I'm listening to the commentary back, and they're talking all kinds of shit about my corner team. My, uh, they're literally across the octagon from us. Yeah. Like so, I've, I mean. It was Wild West back in the day. We had as many corner men as we want. I think I had the whole of Roughhouse in my corner and he had the whole of the Northern Cartel in his corner. So I've got, you know, Jimmy Warled, Paul Daly, Andre Winner. Uh, Dean was there probably. I think Ross Pearson would have been there. Then we had coaches. So we had Lee Livingston. We had probably Nathan Leverton was there. We had Owen Comrie. I mean, these we were all in the corner. Yeah. And then on his side, he had Ian Butlin, Dave Butlin, Lee Remedius, Aaron Chatfield, you know, a whole, a whole group of guys um, in his corner. But then they end up commentating as well. So I'm listening to the fight and listening to his corner team commentating a fight where they felt that he'd won the decision and I won the decision. No way. Like all the way through the fight, they're going, so who do you think won that round? Mm, I think Matt won that round. I mean, he had the armbar attempt and Dan was on top a lot of the time. He didn't do anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah, I would have preferred a more objective voice oh, like your own. Thank though, you. Absolutely. What, yeah. what about your What about your standout moment in the UFC since you've signed, since you've uh, since you've been Octagon side? Let 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 me tell you my one quick story because on. this is from the very first. You were talking earlier about how um, receiving Goldie's format was not good for your confidence. Yeah, I was all right through that event. 
the issue for me arose when it was actually our first commentary event, which was the London card, which what, two months yeah. later. Yeah, something like that. And we're sat Octagon side, just kind of going through the notes and getting prepped. And the, the guys are in the truck. We're doing a few sound checks and stuff. The arena's empty, largely empty, but the lights are on. The doors will be opening in an hour or so. And I'm sat there and the producer comes through in my ear and he says, oh, Dan, I've just realized we've not done any uh, any rehearsals for post-fight interviews. Oh, yes. Remember that? So my, re- my reply was, well, it's a post-fight interview, so I'll just ask him questions about the fight. And he said, yeah, but I-, I would prefer if we would do a little rehearsal first, just so you know what to prepare for. And I'm a bit confused, but I, I said, okay, okay, no worries. And bear in mind, I'm in an empty arena, sitting at the commentary booth. No fights have happened yet. And he said... Okay, Brad Pickett wins by knockout in the second round. Go. And I just froze. I had no questions for him because I hadn't watched the fight. I didn't yeah. know how he'd knocked him out. I didn't know what technique he'd used to knock him out. I, there was, I, I had no facts to base my questions yeah. off. And in that moment then, all of a sudden I thought, oh shit, I can't do this job. What am I doing here? They're going to want me to speak to fighters. This arena is going to be full soon. They're gonna be a, there's going to be TV trucks broadcasting this around the world and I'm going to be in the middle of the octagon in a suit with a microphone making myself look a complete idiot that was that was my first oh shit moment but since then I've been alright my, yeah. my, my logic the way I kind of thought myself out of that is well I was knocked out in this arena a couple of years ago everyone's seen that what's the worst that can happen right you know unless Brad Pickett turns around and knocks me out straight after he's won his fight by TKO I, I don't see what what's the worst that can happen yeah. so I, I always remind myself of that so shout out to Condit thanks for uh, thanks for giving me that cushion <laughs> you've, <in just> yeah <laughs> you've helped my broadcasting yeah, career loads absolutely absolutely yeah again like I don't know standout moments is what was what was a good thing for me what, what about places in the world that you've yeah been I was just thinking about that I was just thinking like when we went down to Australia together oh yeah and and going to Australia I'd never been to Australia before and the UFC like working with the UFC has afforded me that opportunity and so just that in itself was was very very cool um Anderson Silva, Michael Bisping was that's a big moment for me absolutely Joanna Junjacek versus Jessica Panay because mm. it was the first world title fight. Good stoppage as well. Um, by it was a great God fight, but to be trusted with a world title, yeah, uh, was was quite something. So those two are those two are big. I think also, I don't really remember too well our first gig. It was I I say it's like sailing a, a boat in really fucking choppy waters, mm. and it still feels like that. Yeah, but the Abu Dhabi card, I think, was our next one. Yeah, and that was just again, it was mental, but for different reasons, and. You, the scale of the UFC was evidenced again when they'd built this this arena for us and then we're tearing it down and in the middle of the desert, you know. We kept having ins- power cuts, do you remember? Insects kept- everywhere. <laughs> yeah, all, all the trucks were outside, all the changing rooms were outside in little, in like trailers and stuff. That's right. The whole arena was outdoors. My everlasting memory of that is that they had these big searchlights, big spotlights that were arcing across the, across the sky. Yes. It looked fabulous, it looked amazing. But right before the broadcast started, they cut off all of the lights apart from the ones that were on our faces. And it yes. was like every insect within a five-mile radius right. could see our faces glowing on TV. And, I wanted and to, they wanted to kiss us. us. They did. Kiss us with teeth. Yes. Yeah, it was not, that was not pleasant. And then it all went to shit when, who was it? We had a fight where, oh, was it like a clash of it heads was, uh, or Rani something? Yaya. Yes, yeah, it was Rani Yaya. Who was the guy that... Oh. Really nice kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came together, clashed heads. Yeah. 
Yaya went down. The, oh, why am I forgetting buh, the guy's buh, name? Buh, buh, buh. Yeah. Is it with a B? Where's my phone? I'm going to look up. It I'm, was a... I, I always complain. I'm not going to Jamie like Joe Rogan has, so we have to... We have to we have to do it ourselves here. We have to we have to Google things ourselves. It was a moment though because it was it's not just us that the UFC format was new to. We had some a lot of UK personnel that were working the show as well because it was kind of like we want to train these guys up and we could all be autonomous in our own regions. But there's a reason why uh, the same people produce these shows and they still to the day do. They just can't be beaten in that sense. They know it so well. And um, and when this situation occurred, the truck, as you've heard it called before, was absolute pandemonium. <laughs> and no one really knew how to handle this situation because they were all so new. And experienced heads were shouting at the new heads. And I bet they just wanted to get to the front and deliver the instruction. But they had to let the new kids have a go as well. Right. It was Johnny Bedford. That's it. I was going to say, that's why I was going, buh, 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 right. buh, Johnny Bedford. It was Johnny Bedford. It was 39 seconds into the, into the first round. And it was the first fight of the night, which is also why it caught us by surprise. Because we hadn't even really settled in. Yeah. And the next thing, these two guys have clashed heads. They both go down. Bedford jumps up and lands a couple more shots. The referee drags him off. He thinks he's won the fight. Both of them standing up. Yaya's very confused. Bedford's a bit confused still, but he's styling it because he still feels like he won the fight. He's already spending his win bonus in his head. Yeah. And then they announce it as a no contest and he loses his shit. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm like, at that point I was interviewing, but I'm also using elbows as security as well as trying to keep these guys apart. Yeah. Like, I mean, they want, like Bedford wanted to go again. Because I hadn't got rid of the fight. No. And you know, Yaya had no idea what had happened. So he just, like confused like okay i'll fight again i'll be be fine we'll fight again yeah (laughs) no idea what had happened and in my ear i don't know if you remember at the time it was it was just chaos the noise it's like and then i can remember (laughs) our producer everyone 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 stop just stop and and i'm the guy who's waiting there going kind of need to say something soon what are we doing with this because i thought was right no one really knew what had happened Mm. was it going to be a no contest what and we were waiting for those instructions and that communication. It was, God, it was a baptism by fire, wasn't it? Yeah, right. Um, wild one. So that was that. That was pretty good, I have to say. And um, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but going out to Korea and working with Kenny mm. was a moment for me because it showed that although I'd worked with people in the past, I could work with someone that looked exactly like me. <laughs> no, I could. Uh, <laughs> or I looked exactly You've always like been a big fan of Zoolander, haven't you? I have. Uh, and just working with with Kenny off the telly. Uh, w- was good. Kenny off the telly. Kenny off Ke- the telly. Ke- Kenny Florian, as uh, as Hanato Laranyo was called. Did you did you see that that interview? Oh, and it's Hinalto crazy. Hanato on the last Fox Sports in oh, in that special gi. Brilliant. Because I'm a national treasure, Kenny Florian. <laughs> gold. I love him. Absolute he's brilliant. Yeah, he's I got brilliant. so much, so many credits off of the fans for in one fight saying. Yes. I think it was was it Oscar Pihotta? Something about Oscar Pejotas coming to mind here. And I said something. Oh, because he beat Vinny Magalhaes. That's yes. right. And I said, Uncle Hanach yes. would love this guy because something <laughs> something like that. Getting sponsored by fruits and vegetables. And then uh, <laughs> and then I, I then in my love affair with uh, with Uncle Hanach, it then started and we became like friends. Yeah. So, so that that was very cool. But he's, yeah, he's a legit black belt. People don't realize how good no, he it's is. The, yeah, he is a legit black belt. I used to train with him a lot. Yeah, um, he's a funny guy. Oh, man. he's brilliant. I love I love his social media account. <laughs> but yeah, going out to Korea, the Korean fans as well were fantastic, mm. uh, and working that show was was really good for my confidence. 
I had a good time, traveled, dealing with the jet lag and, and all of those things. They might sound like little bits to people, but that shit can... can um, it can make or break a show, definitely. Well, it can if, send yeah, you off and can. you could be fighting upstream. Dude, I remember there was there was an event that I flew out to Melbourne for and I think I was literally, I think I was on the ground for less than three days. Th- there was a reason for it. I had other things to do the previous weekend, the following weekend. It was a quick turnaround. So I literally, I got on a plane. I was, what, 28 hours one way. I landed at 5 a.m. I was on camera doing Rogan-esque, yelling into the camera to hype fights up by 9 p.m. And by 10.30, I had nothing left. And the whole of the rest of the weekend, I'm just trying to play catch-up. Even if I slept for 20 hours, I still didn't feel rested. I know what you mean. Um, I had this, a similar thing in, um, well, I was commentating New Zealand. Mm. And I remember getting to New Zealand and going straight into what we call the format meeting, the production meeting, which is midday on Thursday, or afternoon on Thursday. So the fights are on the Saturday. And because it's uh, New Zealand or Australia, those fights are an early call time. So you're out at like yeah, eight in the morning. Weird, isn't it? it is weird. And it's and it's tough. But this is where I say one thing, because if John Annex listening to this, he's about to if I don't say this, he'd be sitting there going, You guys have no idea <laughs> because John Annick would do that and he'd be working the next week as well. Yeah. And he'd work the week after that. And that blows my tiny little mind. <laughs> because it's he's amazing pace he keeps. The amount that this is a thing, there's, and I don't mean to sound like, like Billy Big Bollocks over here, but not many of us can talk about that job. Mm. There aren't many of us that understand it and all the rest of it. And I say this in a good way. So he does a phenomenal job. The amount of shows that he, that he did, bef- and particularly before he became the play-by-play, uh, sorry, the pay-per-view guy. Yeah. When he was hoovering up all of those shows around the world... And, and maintaining, you know, he's a family man as well and doing everything that he was doing for the UFC. My God, that man, what he was doing. Yeah. Amazing. It was in, an incredible amount of work that he was churning out and the quality of it as well. So every time I think about these things, I always have to say, you've never had it as tough as what J.A.'s had it. Yeah, And absolutely. he's pulled through. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is amazing, his work rate. I mean, I, I and, and the way he maintains the, the, the information that he... That he that he picks up from one show to the, to the next. Yeah, because it could blend into one. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've, we've done two shows today and there were certain times when I'm talking about Gastelum and Whitaker, and I want to talk about Jan and Santos. Yeah. It's just, this, you know, this, the cross-chatter in my brain doesn't doesn't, uh, doesn't help me out in those scenarios, but Annex just, he's a bit clinical in his uh, in his approach to it and, and a bit a bit more relaxed to it as well, which I think is, is how he manages to, to keep such a pace. Yeah. Like we... When we do it, because we're getting sort of what I mean, sort of between six and ten shows a year. Is that what we're doing? Yeah, I think I'd like to think we're we're creeping up in double figures. Creeping slowly, um, but even so, I mean, like every time we do a show, both of us we we throw ourselves into it. Yeah, and I still feel like, I mean, I still feel like what we're doing is is like, I mean, what what Annex doing is is the level to reach for everybody. I think the 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 way that he's so polished in the way that he delivers things. Yeah. I enjoyed working with him. But, uh, you know, it, it's different people doing different roles. Yes. I mean, you're doing the same job as Anik, but you approach it in such a different way to Anik. And same thing with, you know, when we compare you to Goldie, for example. Yeah. Like you and Anik and, and Grisham as well. I mean, I know Grisham, uh, not Grisham, uh, Fitz, uh, uh, Fitzgerald. Um, I know he's just started doing it. I think he's very good as well. I think, for the amount uh, of time he's been doing it. Right. Oh my God. I tell you what, John, if I was having my time again and I wanted to be a UFC commentator, I'm going play by play. 
it might be more difficult, but every dude that fucking retires from the UFC roster is coming for my job. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they're all good. All these American guys. Well, I they, de- well that you say that, good. and I'm not saying that they're bad, but you've got to be the very best. And, uh, and that's, that's why it's so difficult for the UFC to make decisions and who sits in that chair. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier on Jimmy Smith and uh, right decision, wrong decision, whatever it might be. You know, he is one of the very best in the world at what he does. Mm. But then he's in the company of a bunch of other people who are the very best at what they do. And it's it sucks, man. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoyed Jimmy's analysis greatly. Uh, he's got a hell of a body of work. True martial artist. Li- lifelong. Loves this sport like like as much as everyone else in the team. Yeah. I, I tell you what, when I went out to UFC Moncton, I did my research for the fight and then I ended up watching Jimmy Smith fights on YouTube. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, I know the fight's on the card now. Now I better figure out who I'm commentating with. Yeah. I worked with Brendan one time before because you were disappointed about that, I know, because of the timing of it. But I mean, obviously, UFC Liverpool. Yeah, there was, there was no way around it. I had I mean, a baby you, and all you, that. You couldn't have been there, but you know, what an event to miss that was. Oh, I was there, but yeah. I just wasn't... I. You know, people might have seen I did a documentary with Darren Till, and if you haven't seen that documentary, go and watch it. By the way, Where, is it is it on Fight Pass? The Access Mode. Yeah, on Fight Pass. It's also my own channel as it's well. Fantastic. Uh, the Journey of Discovery with yeah. John Gooden. So Journey it's, of Discovery. It's uh, it's sitting there still, and yeah, I I feel like I'd I'd also produced a couple of bits for the UFC too. So I've um I'd I'd been out to see Darren a few times. Mm. And it's not favoritism. Might be a little bit of favoritism. <laughs> um, it's not favoritism. Best man must win. But you can't help but get emotionally attached to people. You know, you see what they're going through. You, you? This, this is exactly it, mate. Yeah. And when and and when you understand, as someone who's who's on the mats and sees it and understands the game as well, like I, I'm open. I open my ears to that to those struggles rather than just sitting there and doing the techniques and taking the shower and going home i'd like to listen to all the stuff around it uh yeah that was a moment and i truly wanted to be i want to be like the harry and frank bruno to some of these guys Mm. you know that i i it's so i just remember that frank bruno and harry was a thing and i'd i'd love to have that that affiliation with some of these fighters yeah and I and when you strike up a relationship like uh, like with Darren and his success and with Connor to a certain extent, though I don't get those opportunities for those big shows, the part of me obviously was like, oh, it would have really been nice to have that relationship where you're the guy that manages to get the best out of them as well, and mm-hmm. you tell that story throughout their career, and it's that constant. Yeah. Yeah, but you—you, you, I mean, you, you're getting a lot more trips. You've been to All Stars a few times to work with the Loads, with yeah. well, Jimmy and and, and, and Gus, Gus and the guys, yeah. Daniel Tamor, uh, David Tamor, um, and then you've just been to uh, Poland with Jan. With Jan Wojowicz, photos were fantastic. It looked incredibly cold though. Minus fifteen. <sighs> never known anything like it, and I've I've never been a skier, so I've never seen that amount of snow. I've never been to a ski resort. And I've never known that amount of cold. Mm. Been to Iceland a couple of times, but we actually went, I took my dad there for his 60th. And they've had a very mild January and, right. and Christmas. And they were very disappointed with the amount of snow coverage. I mean, it's still enough for me. Yeah. And cold enough. My mum's Arabic, so no more. <laughs> so going over there, I was really excited because uh, if you ever speak to the Polish fighters, Zakopanya is, 
I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It's where they go for their winter holidays and their summer holidays because there's a bunch of lakes around there. Mm. And all of them, Carolina, Joanna, some of the coaches, uh, Jan as well, obviously, they'd all been speaking about Zakopania. So I've got to get there. I genuinely was thinking about a holiday destination of one time with family. Now I get there to go on the UFC Dime and, uh, and I climbed a goddamn mountain with Jan. <laughs> Seriously, we climbed for two and a half hours. Wow. And the team set off about 20 minutes, half an hour before us. Might have overtaken a few of them. <laughs> Might have overtaken a few of the old KSW champions. Um, but trying to keep up with Jan. Well, I was trying to keep up with Jan. But, he's, but the thing is, those guys, have, they'd already done it for a day and they were doing it nearly every other day that they were there for 10 okay. days. I only had to do it the one time. Yeah. But I was filming, so I was having to drop back and then pick up pace and try and turn and get some shots. And all. Yeah. that was the reason why I went up there. Not just because I wanted to have fun, by the way. Yeah. There's a reason. And you're wearing some salopettes that you got in the 80s. Whereas, of course. Whereas Jan had his most up-to-date 21st century lightweight lightweight uh, jogging yeah. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a beautiful climb. It was very tough. Was I'm not, honestly, I, I'm sort of saying this. One of, the, one, of the more challenge, one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Really? Oh, fuck yeah. And Jan's Honestly, doing it every other day. Yeah. I mean, it's tough for him. Don't get yeah. me wrong. He's not doing it like it's a walk in the park. Mm. But it's so challenging. And I was on my hands and knees, like, try, because my legs had not gone. They recover. But I still wanted to keep pace with those guys. I'm a yeah. bit competitive. So I'm like, right, if I just crawl on my hands and knees like a bear, because they <laughs> apparently live around here and they do it. But there were times when you've got this steep slope. If you come off of these these previously trodden parts of snow, you go down that slope. You're sliding for uh, 500 feet, 1,000 feet, whatever yeah. it is. I don't know. At but least you'll be nice and numb before you hit the end. With all there the, is uh, that. I mean, all that snow. Yeah, a massive snowball. I've always fancied to roll down the side of a hill. Zorbing, there you isn't go. it? That's it. That's yeah. what it's called, yeah. Yeah. So it was good. Good experience and, and obviously best of skill and luck to Yan. Yeah, Very nice right. dude. And great fight. Um, yeah, we'll make sure you watch the breakdown. It'll be out soon. And uh, and we've got uh, Till Masvidal has been announced as well. We'll be calling that one. I am so excited for that. Big fan of Masvidal from way back in his street fighting days. I used to watch those those YouTube. Videos. You must have met him a few times. Right? Yeah, absolutely. He's not. He's probably not what you expect. No. He's a very very nice guy. He I is. commentated when he fought against uh, Henderson Benson, and uh, that was in Korea. I think. Yeah, was that the? Yeah, it was a mm -hmm. career card. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe that's why I liked it so much. Thanks, Jorge. <laughs> really, really nice fella. Yeah. Really nice fella. And I think this is going to be quite an interesting dynamic between the two of them because they are what they are. Mm. And yeah, the, the build-up will be will be pretty interesting. Yeah. Neither of them are going to take a back step in the trash talking. I think I'm interviewing them too tomorrow, so it right. should be, a, should That'd be an be interesting wicked. one. Yeah. Right, you've got to get on the plane, haven't you? Yeah, let's get You're a plane. You're heading off to Fortaleza. Fortaleza, Brazil. Brazil. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Full Reptile Radio. John Gooden, Peace. what are your socials? Shout out your socials quickly. At you've got John these videos Gooden. you've been doing. Tell us about those videos quickly. Before okay, doing it. Uh, I'm trying to start a couple of things this year. I'm doing a fight night facts. Four minutes. Ram jam packed with all killer and no filler of your fights for the main event. And I'm doing some Q&A stuff as well. So I put a tweet out. Watch my Twitter and then send me some questions, whatever it might be, and I will answer it for you. Happy days. All right. The Journey of Discovery with John Gooden on Happy YouTube. Happy days. Check it out. Thank All right, you. guys. Catch you next time. Us. It can do something no other kind of lizard can do. It can run continuously for a very long time.
and that enables it to become an endurance hunter, chasing down its prey.